Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're glad you joined us today, and we're glad you joined in for our study of the book of Revelation. We pray that it blesses you and encourages you, that it puts the fight back into your soul. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out, newriverchurch.org. Last week, we uh, talked about our identity as a church. Who are we, New River Church? This morning, I want to chat about the what before we sign our covenant. Um, what does God want us to do? Like, as our elders, as our servant team, we've been talking about this. We talk about this a lot. It's part of the role of the elders and the servant team in our church. Where's God taking us? What's God doing? And... Um, over the past several months, as we've been talking, it just seems like the word unleash comes up. God wants us to get out there more. Uh, he wants to um, release us into the world, as it were. I, I mean this in a positive way. I know sometimes it can sound negative, but he wants us to go on the offense. You know, just speaking sports-wise, to get on the offense. You know, uh, Keith Press, I know you're back there in the sound booth. Keith's a soccer coach. Keith, if your team is all defense, uh, it's hard to win games with that. You're not going to score any goals if all you do is play defense. You need to have an offense to get a few balls in the net, a uh, few balls in the bucket, so to speak. I mean, so that's what I mean, offense. You know, friends, you and I are not here to defend the kingdom of God. We're here to advance it. And sometimes as Christians, we think like it's our job to defend the kingdom. No. God put us on the offense. We're here to advance it. And it's easier said than done. Anybody who's ever attempted to live for Jesus full on understands that there is an enemy who resists us at every turn. And the sooner we come to terms with the fight that we're in, the sooner we can begin to win it. We, we need to expect the fight. It's part of the deal. The devil has us fighting things, quite honestly, that we don't need to be fighting. Meanwhile, he robs us blind. You know, he's, he's got us wrapped up in politics. How's that for a lost cause? He's got us twisted up with, with, with fear. He's got us watered down by cheap religion. He's got us divided by trivial pursuits. He's got us polluted with sins that we should have overcome years ago. Meanwhile, he continues to just pound us. And I don't know about you, but I'm tired of losing to the devil. Aren't you? I'm tired of seeing people that I love torn apart. I'm tired of seeing marriages destroyed and homes destroyed. I'm, I'm tired of seeing our children put at risk and confused by the very people entrusted to teach them. So this is why we begin the year with a deep dive into Revelation. This is why Revelation. Officially, we're going to start next Sunday, but I, I'm really excited. I've been working on this for a long time, and I, I hope you 
it's okay that we start today, right? So I was going to do the introduction this morning, and uh, then next week we'll get into the meat and potatoes of Revelation, but this morning is just the Revelation, and besides it fits with our covenant, because this is what God is wanting to do with us this year. He wants to unleash us. He wants to launch us. He wants to start us playing offense, as it were, to aggressively begin taking the good news of Jesus into the world around us. He wants us to get back into the fight. But before we get back into the fight, quite honestly, God needs to put the fight back in to us. And this is why the book of Revelation, because that's the purpose of this book. I got a confession to make. Like many people, when COVID hit two years ago, I'm thinking that the world is going to come to an end. Were you there? I was there. I was anyway. I'm just I'm keeping it real. So I'm thinking... Okay, this is it. This is the big one. So I'm starting to study the book of Revelation because, you know, this is the end times book, right? I mean, in the Bible, there's one thing that we know about the book of Revelation. It's about the end times. So if we're in the end times, that's where I go. So I'm digging into Revelation, trying to, you know, find clues about pandemics and the beast and the end of the world and all that stuff. But what I found just rocked my world, I was stunned by what I discovered. The book of Revelation is not a book about the end. It's a book about beginnings. Look at how it ends. I mean, look how the book ends. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Here's just an excerpt from that. Uh, just, just catch this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, you want to read this with me? I am making everything new. That's what God said. I am making everything new. It's a start to a fresh day. A new sheriff is in town, so to speak, and there is hope. Look at that phrase, God's dwelling is now with men. Does that sound familiar to you? Anybody remember Leviticus 26.12 from last year? We studied Leviticus. We memorized this verse. God says to them, I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people, he says. That's Leviticus. I hope that's ringing bells. I know it's been a year now. But uh, right in Revelation, that becomes a reality. God says, I will walk among you. In Revelation, God says, I am among I'm here. And all things are new, and it is good. God is now walking with his people. So Revelation is the fulfillment of that promise. Now, when we study Revelation, we need to keep four things in mind. And think of these four things as being like the, the legs of a chair. You know, I mean, you can, you can sit on a one-legged chair, but not very comfortably. And you could have a two-legged chair and a three-legged chair and... That works too, but still not very comfortably. 
You need a four-legged chair to have a good, solid place to sit on, correct? And one of the big mistakes that people make when they're studying Revelation is they only look at one of the legs. They look at the prophetic leg. And Revelation is a prophecy. Absolutely, it's a prophetic book. But it's not just a prophetic book. And when you only look at it on that one leg, that's when you get caught up in the weird images and the symbols, and you start to try to interpret all of that through our newspaper, and you come up with all kinds of wackadoodle. And, 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 and I'm, I'm saying it's not, wrong to, it's, not, you know, it's not wrong to look at it prophetically. We just, if you want to get a whole picture of Revelation, a healthy picture, you need to look at all four legs of the chair. And so what are the four legs, okay? What are they? First of all, it is a theme. Let's look at the theme of Levit uh, Rev Leviticus. Wow. Look at the theme of Revelation. Thematically, Revelation is about the exodus. It's the final, it's the ultimate Exodus story. Do you remember the Exodus story from the Bible in the book of Exodus? You know how it goes. Perhaps the, the people of Israel, they're slaves in Egypt for 400 years, and they start to cry out to God for help and deliverance, and God hears them. And then God raises up Moses, and Moses comes into, into Egypt, and, and he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And what does Pharaoh say? No way. And God then spends the next couple of years convincing Pharaoh, if you will, to let his people go. He pummels them, plague after plague after plague, ten plagues in all. Finally, Pharaoh has a change of heart and decides to let the people go. Only does Pharaoh really let the people go? Nope. There's one more final epic battle, isn't there? They, they come to the edge of the Red Sea and then Pharaoh's army chases them and boxes them in. And God has to miraculously rescue his people through the Red Sea. And it's not until they're on the other side of the Red Sea, looking back and seeing Egypt's army drowned in the sea, that finally God's people can look ahead to the promised land. The, the land of milk and honey with the blessings and the, and the, you know, the, the fruit, I mean, Grapes, the size of grapefruit, you know, I mean, they're just, but it's until then, they're struggling to get through. When writing Revelation, John uses the Exodus as his inspiration. Exodus is, I mean, Revelation is the final, the ultimate Exodus. First of all, just notice the theme of new beginning, like we said, right? God is making all things new. He's separating his people from this broken world, and he's giving them something new. And notice how heaven is like the promised land. In the Bible, they're often compared to one another. The promised land is a picture of heaven. Second, notice the struggle in Revelation with hell. The devil and his two beasts fight hard against God and his people, refusing to let them go, and he fight them every step of the way, so just like Pharaoh fought Moses, and just like God fought against Pharaoh, in Revelation, God fights against the devil and his world by pummeling them with seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, 
which we will get to in a few weeks. But when you read them, you will notice they look an awful lot like the ten plagues. See? Revelation is the exodus. It's the final exodus where God is resting his people, if you will, out of the iron grip of this world, and he's setting them free, and he's taking them to the ultimate promised land. So what are we saying? You're saying that John plagiarized the Exodus when he's writing Revelation? No, 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 not at all. John, I believe, had a revelation. I believe John had this vision. He's writing it. He's writing what he sees 100%. It's just that this theme of Exodus runs through the whole Bible, and it culminates in the book of Revelation. It finds its fulfillment here at the end of the Bible. And this is the great hope of the Bible, isn't it? That God is working a plan to get us out of this broken, messed up planet. He's, he's working a plan to spend forever with his people. And, and, and we hang on right now because you and I are in the middle of the ten plagues. It's kind of the message of Revelation. We're in the middle of the plagues. I mean, picture yourself being an ancient Israelite. Put yourself in their sandals. They're, they're in Egypt. They had to make bricks without straw, right? They're, they're, they're thinking, we're delivered, and the next day, Pharaoh goes, oh, yeah, you think you're delivered? No straw for you. It got harder and harder and harder on them. They, they, had, to live the, they had to live through the ten plagues, didn't they? I mean, yes, God rescued them. And some of the plagues, they, were, they escaped the, the direct consequences of some of the plagues, but they lived through them. They witnessed them. They, they had frogs in their front yard. You know, they, had, they swatted gnats. <laughs> they, they, they lived through the plagues. And so what I'm saying is you and I are in the middle of that now. That's kind of the message of Revelation, is, is we're, we're in the middle of this process where God is convincing the devil and his world, as it were, to let his people go. And they fight and they resist at every turn. And so this is where we are. This is the message of Revelation. That's the theme. Think about it as it's the general theme of the whole book, Exodus. Second leg of the chair that you got to look at is let's look at it literarily. Look at it just from this literary perspective. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, I'll start there. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Look at verse 1. Just zero in there. This, that word revelation. Notice it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That word revelation in Greek, in the original language that John wrote in, is the word apocalypsis. Apocalypsis. It's literally the word apocalypse. And it's the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Now, that's important for two reasons. The word apocalypse is a rich word, and you and I don't do it justice. So the first reason why that's important is this. The word apocalypse does not mean the same thing to them as it does to you and me. 
The word apocalypse in Greek is a compound word. Apo, meaning out of, and calypsis, meaning hiding. So it literally means out of hiding, apocalypse. Out of hiding, or to unveil, or to reveal something. So the word revelation is the word apocalypse, literally. So, and, and why is that important? Because right away you see how modern people have twisted this word. Because we think of the word apocalypse as being this cataclysmic ending to the world, right? We, we think of zombies attacking and asteroids hitting the earth and everybody dying in a ball of fire and something like that. We, we even think we just survived the snowpocalypse as if a couple of inches of snow brings the world to an end. We joke about that, that's, but that's how we use the word apocalypse, don't we? we? We think of it as being like this big ending, this cataclysmic ending, and that's not how they saw the word. They used the word simply to mean to reveal something that had been hidden, and to first century Christians, the greatest unveiling, the greatest apocalypse of all times was the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not only just his death and resurrection, but what it accomplished to set people free from sin, to unite us with God, and to make us into the family of God. Like, that is what they saw as being the great apocalypse. Think about how that revolutionized the world. Just just consider for a second all the advancements that have been made over the years in science, technology, the arts, politics, law, that have been rooted in Judeo-Christian ethics, that find their home actually in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just consider it. Like the concept of freedom that is the bedrock of this nation's constitution, that's a Christian ethic finds its home in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Women's rights, again, a Christian concept, finds its home in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Heck, in general, human rights is a Christian concept, finding itself in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It starts there. You understand that this has revolutionized the history of the world. And first century Christians could feel it down deep in their bones. Like they didn't understand how it all would shake out. They didn't know that. But they, they, they knew they had witnessed something. And it was big. And they were at the epicenter of it, you know? The, this is what the Apostle Paul was saying in uh, Ephesians chapter 3. If you got your Bible open, you can flip over to Ephesians 3. I just want to quickly buzz through these uh, quick 11 verses. But I want you to see this, how, like they, how they thought of the word apocalypse. And as I read Ephesians 3, just pay attention to how there's a mystery. There's this hidden thing. And now it's apocalypsed. It's revealed. It's out in the open. Here, here it is in Ephesians 3. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, Surely you've heard, I'm in verse 2, about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. 
which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. See that? It was hidden to them, and now it's, it's open. We can see it. Okay, here he goes. This mystery is, what's the mystery? This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. That's the mystery, that God has been working. In G- and now in Jesus, he's bringing these people together because of their faith in this Savior. Paul says, we can see that now. They couldn't see that all those years ago, but now we see it. It's been apocalypsed. It's been revealed to us, he says. He goes, he goes on, verses 7 and 8. He goes, you know, I'm an apostle. And then verse 9, and he says, God sent me to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. It should be apocalypsed to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. You, you see what I mean? You see it? Paul's almost breathless as he's talking about this. He's like, we've had this thing. It's been hidden for all these years. And now because of what Jesus did, we can see it. It's, it's like these, these first century Christians began to literally reinterpret their entire history through the lens of this one event, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for them, that's the apocalypse. Now, why is this important when, we're, when you and I are reading Revelation? Because when John's writing this, okay, John's not trying to predict some future event where the world comes to a cataclysmic end. John is trying to reveal to us, it's the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. He's trying to reveal to us how the death and the resurrection, the life of Jesus has changed everything. That's what he's doing. That's the first way to look at apocalypse, okay? That's the first thing. The second part about this word apocalypse that we need to understand is it is also a defined genre of writing. It's a legitimate genre, a way to write. Um, And this is important. Apocalyptic literature was super popular between the years of about 500 BC or so and 200, 250 AD or so. So for about five, six hundred years, we have examples, a lot of examples actually, in both secular writings and sacred writings of apocalyptic literature, of people that wrote using this genre of writing. Now, you know how genre works. You walk through the Barnes and Noble with your Starbucks, and you notice right away that the books are all divided according to genre. and, And you notice there are maybe even hundreds of different genres of writing, from murder mysteries to romance novels to children's books to cookbooks to you name it. Um, There's all these different genres. And why are books put in the genre that they're put in? Because those books all have common elements to them that make them fit in that genre. We know how that works. I mean, you know romance books. Romance books all look the same. 
You have this, you know, gorgeous guy who is super successful, but something's just missing in his life. He's lonely. And then you have this pretty girl, and she's also super successful, and she's just so lovely, except she's lonely. And then somehow they find each other, and they find love, and then you discover that they hit a bump because love is just so stinking hard. But they work it out in the end because they have true love, and this is how this works. It was a romance novel, right? A murder mystery starts with a dead body, doesn't it? Dead body and nobody, and how did that get there? Could be the UPS guy. It, it could, be, uh, could be the, you know, the next-door neighbor, ex-lover. We don't know. you got to read all the way to the end of the book to find out who actually put the dead body there. That's, that's a murder mystery. You know, Stephen King books, they're, they're creepy-crawly, so they go in the creepy-crawly section because that's what Stephen King books are. This is how genre works, and we know that it does because the, the, the books have common elements to them. Apocalyptic literature is a legit genre, meaning it has common elements to it. And Revelation fits squarely in the genre. It has symbols, a lot of the use of symbols. It uses uh, fantastic images and creatures, four-headed beasts, dragons, things like that. It, it uses patterns with numbers. The book of Revelation loves numbers. Seven, 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 seven is everywhere in the whole book. That's very common in apocalyptic literature. Not just seven, but just the use of numbers and number patterns. And then the other thing that's very common in apocalyptic literature is the author is a part of the story. The author somehow gets this you know, otherworldly supernatural experience, and he steps into this world, as it were, and the author tells you what he or she sees. That's apocalyptic literature. That is the book of Revelation. Now, why is that important? Because movies weren't invented yet in John's day. And they wrote this way to be entertaining. They wrote this way to capture their audience's attention so that they could remember it. See, it captivated the reader. It, it moved them. They could feel something when they were hearing this read. See? And why would John write that way? Well, because he wanted his audience to remember it. And why did he need for his audience to remember it? That brings us to the third leg of understanding Revelation. You need to look at it personally. Revelation is a letter, it's a letter. Not only is it a letter, it's a circular letter, which means it was meant to be shared. And this is long before Kinko's was ever invented. So there's literally one copy of Revelation, which means his hearers only had one chance to hear it being read. And so it had to be written in a way that they could hear it once, somehow grab a hold of it, feel it in their bones, remember it, and be moved by it. This is why he wrote the way that he did. Look at chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. John, <clears throat> to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. 
to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Wow. So the apostle John, John, is writing to how many churches? Seven churches in the province of Asia. This is Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. So it's in that region of the world. These seven churches are located there. And, he's, and who are they? These are persecuted Christians. The book of Revelation is written in about the, about the year 90 A.D. During this time, Domitian is emperor of Rome. And Domitian was absolutely brutal towards Christians. By this time, all the other apostles are dead. John is the last living apostle. He's the last living one who, you know, was one of the 12 disciples. So you think about it, by now, the apostle Paul is dead, the apostle Peter is dead, James is dead, you know, the others are dead. Now, these guys are like rock stars in the early Christian movement. So to have them gone has a real profound impact on your faith, don't you think, as a Christian? Like, you're looking up to these guys, and now they're, and they're gone. And, and what's more, it's been about 30 years, and you've been enduring persecution. And now John is an old man, and, and you know, he's concerned about these people. And, and Rome now has a new emperor. I mean, you thought things were bad. You thought things were bad under, under, emperor, under emperor Caligula back in the late 30s. You thought things were really bad under Nero in the late 50s, early 60s when Nero was doing his thing? <laughs> Domitian makes those guys look like pussycats. Domitian is literally hunting Christians down, burning them at the stake, skinning them alive, throwing them to lions in the Colosseum, you name it. He's doing it to Christians. You know, we think we have it hard, right? We're like, oh, we're struggling. You know, we got to wear a mask and we lose our minds, right? We, listen, that's, we don't know persecution, friends. We just don't. <laughs> I mean, I'm not trying to minimize our struggles. We got our struggles, okay? But these people, they know persecution. And, and imagine what that does to your faith. Imagine how do you stay strong when you're facing such opposition? This is the challenge before John. John's now an old man. Think about it. He, if he was a teenager when Jesus was doing, when Jesus' ministry happened, which he probably was, a late teen, this is now 60 years later. So John is now in his 80s. He's an old man. And he's the last of the 12 disciples left. And, and he sees what's happening to his friends. He knows the pressures that they're enduring. And this is the challenge in front of John. He writes them this letter. It's called Revelation. It's a circular letter. One copy gets passed around to all these churches. And this is important for us to understand because the fantastic images and the fantastic symbols being used in Revelation, listen, we find them mysterious, but John did not write them to be mysterious. He wrote them to be memorable. That's the concept. Remember, movies weren't invented yet. 
And a picture is worth a thousand words. So John uses his words to paint pictures so that his readers can hear it once and remember it. Like these images are meant to inspire us. They're meant to provoke us to action. They're meant to move us. They're meant to make us angry even at times. And this is why John writes the way that he does. Let me just give you a quick example. Like here's a little test. Like which, which moves you more? Which stirs your heart more? The image of the devil as a fallen angel or the image of the devil in Revelation 12 as a fire-breathing dragon who wants to eat a baby? You see what I mean? When you picture the devil as a fallen angel, you almost feel sorry for him. Like, I hope he didn't break a wing. I hope he's okay. When you picture the devil as a fire-breathing, baby-eating dragon, you want to crush his ugly head, but you want to be careful because he's a dragon, <laughs> right? You don't want to do this. Anyway, you see what I mean? Which do you remember more? See, the, the whole concept here is revelation is supposed to be felt. It's supposed to provoke us to action because we remember how we feel. Our feelings stick with us for a long time, and revelation is meant to be felt. You're supposed to feel your bones shake as you hear it read. Like one minute, you're caught up in wonder with this throbbing heart of worship for a great and magnificent God. And the next minute, you, the cat's got your tongue. You're hushed. This is amazing. And, and the next minute, you are so angry, you're ready to fight. I want to kill something. And this is the beauty of this amazing letter, Revelation. Do you see that? Does that make sense? These are the first three legs. And then we come to the fourth leg, and that is this, prophetically. You need to look at it prophetically. And this is the one that's the most common. Revelation is a prophecy. Verse 3 says it right out, right? Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. So it is a prophetic book. But by telling us that it's a prophecy, John is helping us to understand it because the primary purpose of prophecy is not necessarily to tell the future. The primary purpose of prophecy, prophecy is interested in what is God saying? What is God saying to us? This is the job of a prophet to tell us what God is saying. Look at 1 Corinthians 14, 3. It says that the purpose of prophecy is everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, their encouragement, and their comfort. That's why we have prophecy. Listen, I, I'm not suggesting that Revelation does not contain insight into the future. I believe that it does. So I'm not trying to minimize that. I guess what I'm just trying to say is that the primary purpose of Revelation is to strengthen, encourage, and comfort God's people who, in John's day, were literally being skinned alive. And he's trying to do that, helping them to go through this difficult time. See, how does it help John's audience if John's writing Revelation and telling them something good's going to happen in 3,000 years? Like, that's not encouraging. That's actually, that's almost cruel, isn't it? Right? Oh, just hang on there. The sun will come out in two millennia. <laughs> right? I mean, come on. That's not helpful at all. So John's not trying to do that. His, his main question, you see, that, that we want to look at now in Revelation is this. It's not what will happen next. 
The main question is, what's God saying to us now? What's he saying to us? And there's one message that comes through Revelation loudly and clearly. In Revelation, you can't help but notice this. Everything shakes except heaven. I mean, everything. Stars fall from the sky. Oceans dry up. The earth quakes. Mountains tremble. Rivers flood. Governments tumble. Economies collapse. Earth's most powerful people, the kings, they cower in caves and they pray for death. <laughs> but there's one city in Revelation that never shakes. There's one throne that never moves. There's one king who never worries. There's one place that never has a bad day, not even as a tear shed. Heaven. And John is writing to anchor us firmly in that reality. That's what he's trying to do. And this is why we're studying Revelation. Friends, we need to get out of this space that we're in. I mean, we, New River, but we, the church collectively. I, I think I can say this for the church, capital C, at least the Western church. We need to get out of this space we're in. The church has become so political, and she's become so compromised with sin. The church has become so consumed by the same fears that consume the rest of the world. We've forgotten who we are as the people of God. We've forgotten what kingdom we are really a part of. Here's what I pray happens to us in the next 10 weeks, okay? Here's my prayer. My prayer is that we, we, we loosen our grip on this world and we begin to tighten our grip on that world and that we become so rock solid in the ultimate reality that is ours in heaven that when this world shakes and crumbles and rocks and rolls, we remain strong. And God's purpose in that is to actually show the rest of the world that they're losing. You understand that? That when they rock and we don't, it says we've got a stronger rock. See? That's the idea. And listen, Christian. You will be the last man standing. You will be. This is your destiny. That's not just pie in the sky thinking. It's your destiny as a child of God. You will be the last man standing. But this is not a call for us to just hang on to the end. This is a call for us to fight for the souls of others. When I know that hell is not a problem for me and that death is not a threat to me, that empowers me to live with the kind of faithful abandon that is the hallmark quality of the true people of God. And this is what we're doing in Revelation. This is where we're going. And this is where we're going in 2022, my friend. Let me say that phrase again. When we know that hell is not a problem and we know that death is not a threat, that empowers us to live with the kind of faithful abandon that is the hallmark quality of the people of God. He's getting us, putting the fight back into us and putting us back into the fight.
Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.